This program is brought to you by the Hawaii Chapter of the Society for Conservation Biology, with assistance from KTUH. SCB Hawaii offers opportunities for direct conservation action through our Education and Outreach, Policy, and Science Communications Committees. To learn more about these opportunities and to join our chapter, please visit www.hiscb.org. Membership is free for students and $10 for professionals. You can also join the SCB Global Organization at www.conbio.org. That's C-O-N-B-I-O.org. Mahalo. Okay, and now we are officially recording. Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> hello. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of Conservation Talk Story. I am your host, Max Bendis conservationist and agronomist. Uh, that means that I study plants and soil and the way that they interact, primarily in agricultural systems, but kind of just all over the place. Uh, I'm very lucky to have today in the studio with me, uh, Mele Kalsa. She is an island restoration specialist with island conservation here in Hawaii. Uh, and she was an integral part of the effort to eradicate rats from Lahua Island. That is what we are here to talk about and celebrate today, invasive species management and the success story at Lahua Island. So without any further ado, I would like to introduce Mele Kalsa to all of you. Aloha, Max, and aloha, listeners. Thanks for having me here today. Well, it's an absolute pleasure having you on the show, Mele. Uh, before we get started, I just wanted to ask, uh, what kind of a scientist are you? Um, well, I would describe myself primarily as an ecologist. Um, that's because I really like looking at the big picture of all the integration of all the different ecosystems and different species and different trophic levels and how they interact. Um, and as an ecologist, I feel like um, through the work that I do, I can really have the most impact and do the most good for the most species. So rather than just focusing on one particular species or type of animal, um, I really love the big picture. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a big picture scientist myself as well. Uh, and I, for a lot of the same reasons, but why, I mean, there are so many different ways for us to focus our efforts as scientists. What, what really was it about like ecology and sort of system science that was uh, appealing to you? You know, why did you pick that? over just about anything else you could have done? Well, it's interesting. I actually started off as a uh, botanist, kind of just classic botany, taxonomy, and um, that kind of thing. Yep. Um, <laughs> but as I dove more into the issues facing Hawaii's species, I realized that invasive species are such a huge part of that. And... Um, that by managing invasive species, you can benefit your native species that you care about and benefit so many other things beyond the scope of your you know, primary focus. And so that was what was really appealing to me, again, doing the most good for the most species um, through invasive species management. Did you grow up here in Hawaii? It kind of sounds like you did. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It must have done a lot to shape your thinking when it comes to the value of natural systems. Uh, or do you have any like 
childhood memories or experiences that were particularly impactful when it comes to, you know, becoming a scientist or wanting to engage in conservation? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I really think that um, growing up here and seeing everything um, firsthand really did impact my perspective on these issues. And um, one thing that really sticks with me is as a as a young kid, we used to go into Kalalau Valley a lot. Um, and that's here on Kauai, where I live, where I grew up. And um, it's a beautiful natural wilderness area. Um, and going out there, we, we took a trip one time with a Hanai uncle of mine who is an amazing naturalist in his own right. And he really um, helped teach me about kind of the differences between native species and introduced species and how you can kind of tell them apart and what different ecosystem functions they have. And as a young kid, I think I was maybe about 12 at the time, it just completely blew my mind <laughs> and really opened up a whole new way of thinking for me and a whole new way of seeing the world, really, you know, driving around on Kauai and seeing like 99% invasive species all along the roadside and then going up into Koke'e and seeing you know, 99% native species up there um, and kind of the differences that are very much driven by human impacts um, was was a big eye opener for me. Mm -hmm. And and that is what really drove me to this field and this career. Yeah, I I feel like all of us in the cons the realm of conservation have those you know, stories and moments to look back on. For me, it would have been hiking around as a kid in Yosemite Valley uh, and just backpacking out there and being surrounded by the splendor of nature. And then later on in college, actually being exposed to plant science and ecology and understanding the interconnected nature of these systems that I was already so in love with from like a, a personal, somewhat spiritual level and then being able to appreciate the one, the, the delicacy of some of these systems, but also at the same time, their resilience and just how it, there's this really, really beautiful dichotomy between resilience and fragility in natural systems that I think is, is very poetic and romantic in a sense. Yeah, and we see that on these island ecosystems so much, um, you know, at island conservation, you know, our mission is to prevent extinctions by removing invasive species from islands, right? So we work specifically on islands and we see that over and over again where um, when there's an invasive species present, you know, there are major impacts and major damages. And unfortunately, like 85% of all recorded extinctions have occurred on islands. Um, and that's because they are biodiversity hotspots. Um, and, you know, I think it's 5% of Earth's landmass, but 20% of all the plants, reptiles, birds, and amphibian species exist on islands. Wow, that is <laughs> quite a large disparity. And we've talked about this a little bit in some of our previous episodes, but uh, there's this... Uh, 
ecological phenomenon or uh, process that we call uh, island biogenetics. And it's, it's the process by which islands facilitate this type of biodiversity. And so because they are, you know, small, not necessarily interconnected communities, they don't have the same type of genetic immigration that mainland communities would have. So they become very specialized and niche driven, and it drives that diversity even further than it would in some place like the mainland. But on the flip side of this, this is kind of the dichotomy we were talking about earlier, where you have such a beautiful, diverse system, which is so heavily co-evolved because these species have been, you know, living together in semi-isolation for millions of years, you know, they have almost become reliant on each other. And so when you have an invasive species come in uh, and something invasive is something that would be introduced by humans, not naturally occurring or uh, immigrating to the islands, you know, it, it potentially disrupts that system in such a, a meaningful way that, you know, the system starts to sort of break down around this new intruder. And, you know, we've talked uh, in previous episodes briefly about, you know, some of the impacts that you know, rats and other invasive species have. But I was hoping that, Mele, we could go into more detail regarding specific impacts on Lahua Island that these rats are causing. Because we know that they eat nests or they eat eggs and they disrupt seed birds and they eat seeds and seedlings of plants and they basically just disrupt everything going on. But how did that, those presence of rats, uh, on the Hua Islands specifically sort of mess up the system that was there? Yeah, so um, invasive rats are the most widespread invasive species on islands, and they are present on 90% of the world's islands. Wow, really? Um, yeah, unfortunately. And, you know, most of that is introduction through human mm -hmm. activities, right? A lot of it is from early explorers and ships and things like that. Um, and rats are generalists, right? So when they're introduced into these areas, like you said, they just devour everything. You know, birds, chicks, eggs, seeds, plants, snails, insects, and they really just reshape um, an ecosystem by removing so many of its integral parts. Um, and on Lehua specifically, um, so we had uh, one species of rat, the um, Pacific rat, Rattus exulans, and there were also um, rabbits introduced to the island. And so the the rabbits really did a number on the vegetation. They pretty much denuded the island and um, and caused really a lot of erosion, um, you know, which had detrimental impacts to the coral reef um, ecosystem all around it, um, and you know, impacted the birds, of course, as well, who rely on the vegetation for nesting habitat. Right. Um, so in 2006, island conservation uh, removed the rabbits from the island. Um, and so that was a big win and the vegetation was able to rebound successfully from that. Um, uh, but the rabbit, the rats remained, right? And so the rats continued to impact the seabirds. Um, and we unfortunately had a, have a lot of evidence of 
rat predation um, and rat impacts um, on the seabirds specifically of the island, um, but also on the native plants too. Like there were certain native trees out there that every seed I would find was just chewed up by rats, right? And so they there were mature trees, but they weren't ever able to set seeds and reproduce successfully. Yeah, and this is of... an issue that we see a lot of times with rats, right? Where they break that reproductive cycle for native species. So like one really extreme example is from uh, Pinzon Island in the Galapagos, where there's, a, you know, the Galapagos tortoises, right? So mm -hmm. the Pinzon tortoise is endemic only to that island. And um, for a hundred years, there were only adult tortoises and no sign of any young tortoises uh, uh, surviving, right? And um, after rat eradication, there were finally baby tortoises being found on this island. Wow. And, you know, thank God that they're long lived tortoises, right? Because yeah, otherwise they would have completely gone extinct in that time. Like anything Oof. with a shorter life cycle would have completely died out. But because they're so long lived, you know, they were able to withstand that, um, that hundred year period of rats being present on the island. But yeah, once we eradicated them, they, they finally are able to like come back from the brink of extinction with new babies popping up every day. Especially when you've got a species that kind of moves so slowly. It's nice when that actually becomes an advantage for them. Uh, but you mentioned, you know, rat eradication and rabbit eradication too. How did, how did that actually come about? You know, what, you know, we've, we've talked a bit about some invasive species management practices on the show before. Uh, actually, we did an episode where I told the story about uh, how mongooses were introduced, and they were introduced as a sort of biocontrol uh, against the rats, although it didn't do any of their sort of pre-check analysis, and it wasn't really a scientific release. It was just some uh, plantation farmers who were like, yeah, hey, let's just bring mongooses over. It works in Brazil, so it'll work here too. Um, but that's not to say that biocontrol strategies haven't been successful. Um, the erythrinogal wasp is currently being managed with biocontrols, and that has been, you know, at least moderately successful in a, in a sense. It hasn't completely eliminated the gall wasps, but it certainly does limit the damage they do when that biocontrol is present. And so since biocontrol didn't really work the first time for rats, what does work then? Yeah, I mean, biocontrol is certainly an important tool in the conservation toolbox, right? But it's not the only tool. We have so many different tools. And, um, you know, that, like the erythrina example that you gave is is a great success success story, right? Um, I remember when the wheelie wheelie were dying back and, you know, everybody was freaking out and they didn't know, like, what was going to happen if that whole you know, all the erythrinas were going to go extinct. But um, but luckily, with the introduction of this gall wasp, you know, we were able to save them and protect them. Um, so it, it can work. Absolutely. It can also fail miserably, like the <laughs> mongoose example that you said. Right. And I think it all just comes down to us doing uh, due diligence, doing our homework and uh, making sure that we 
understand the impacts of whatever conservation in, in um, intervention we want to be utilizing, right? right. So what we specialize in um, is like removing invasive species from islands. And the cool thing about that is because you're working on a relatively small and you know fully enclosed island system, you really can remove 100% of an invasive species over time. This is a proven way to prevent extinctions of uh, native and endemic species. And there have been over 1,500 successful eradications around the world. Um, and more than 600 of those were targeting rodents specifically because, again, you know, they're such a ubiquitous um, species and they really do a lot of damage. Um, and it's a very successful tool. Um, I'd say about 90% of all eradications um, are successful. Wow. That's, yeah. quite, that's quite a high success rate. It is. Yeah. I mean, it takes a lot of planning. It takes a lot of work to get there. It's not something you can just be like, hey, I feel like eradicating rats like <laughs> overnight. OK, boom, we're done. Um, it's a very complex process. You know, there's a lot of planning that goes into it, a lot of monitoring, you know, every island um, ecosystem and system is unique and must be treated uniquely. And so there are uh, principles that we abide by, um, you know, that allow us to be so successful. And, you know, part of that is, um, you know, targeting every individual of your target species, right? Um, you don't want to just remove 85% of them because as we know, rats will repopulate very quickly. Yeah, they'll come back um, almost as fast yeah. as rabbits, ironically enough. <laughs> right? Um, yeah, I mean, you need to make sure that there's you have good biosecurity in place where they're not going to get reintroduced if you do successfully remove them. Um, you know, you need to be able to minimize risks to all the other species in the ecosystem um, through careful planning or, um, you know, timing oftentimes is a big part of it, right? Like we have migratory birds that come and go at certain times. And, and um, so, uh, yeah, that's part of it. Or um, sometimes we even go as far as like captive holding programs, right? If there's a species that's especially at risk and um, really, really rare, and we just can't um, take any kind of risks with that, you know, we'll go into a captive holding uh, program with those. And so, um, you know, no matter what, we always try to use the most humane um, practices that are available to us and, um, and, you know, ultimately the benefits, the long-term benefits need to outweigh the short-term risks, right? Mm -hmm. Because as with any conservation intervention, when you're going in there, you've got a lot of boots on the ground, you're doing a big, you know, big project, there are risks involved with that, right? Um, like you said, these island ecosystems are fairly fragile um, when they've been upset and, um, so we need to make sure that the long-term benefits are worth any short-term risks that could occur. 
So those are kind of the principles that we look into when we're going to be initiating a new project. Mm-hmm. How does how does the the eradicate the eradication? How does the eradication of rats actually look on the ground? You know, I I like to imagine researchers in like, you know, their big rain boots sort of like trampsing around and like with nets and stuff and just catching rats. But I I know that's not the reality of the situation. Uh, So I was hoping that you could enlighten all of us a bit on sort of how how a a day on Lahua Island would look for uh, for you. Well, I mean, the main tool that we have for eradicating rats specifically um, is a bait containing rodenticide. So it's 99% like food grade cereal grains. And then um, it's like 50 parts per million of a um, rodenticide toxicant, right? And, um, you know, the reason that we use rodenticides is because rodents are really specifically susceptible to these kind of anticoagulant um, uh, formulations and um, much more so than other um, mammals and other animals. Um, So yeah, we use these rodenticide baits, um, we spread them, you know, across the island. Um, You do need to make sure that you get them everywhere because (laughs) rats can live anywhere. (laughs) And so that ends up looking really crazy sometimes. Like we've had operations where there's a guy hanging from a helicopter dropping, you know, tying bags of bait into the crowns of palm trees, like because that's where the rats were living, right? And it, it it's kind of amazing the lengths that we'll go to sometimes um, to to be able to meet those eradication principles that you know you have to put every single individual at risk mm-hmm. um, of exposure. And so um, so yeah, we we definitely utilize the rodenticide bait. That's a, a really important tool. Um, you know, hopefully one day we will not need to use toxicants and there will be other tools in the toolbox. Um, but for now, that's the best one available to us. And so I'd say the day to day for me on Lehua when when the bait was already on the ground, um, we were walking around looking for bear patches, you know, looking to make sure that there was a good distribution of bait across the ground and a lot of counting pellets. <laughs> we had like uh, pre-established plots, right, where we would look for um, for bait uptake, uh, the rate of consumption mm-hmm. and the density, monitoring the density of the bait available to rats over time. And so it was a lot of walking and looking for gaps and counting pellets <laughs> was kind of my day to day. I mean, it sounds like a, a pretty, honestly, a pretty relaxing day. You know, walk around <laughs> an island, count some stuff. You know, I assume there's clipboards involved. You know, that's that's my kind of science. You you get out in the in the environment, you survey some stuff. I'm usually looking for plants, uh, but you know, there's other stuff to look for when you're an ecologist. 
Um, I once had a, a teacher tell me that um, if you're getting into biology, you better be good at counting because it's a lot of <laughs> counting things. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Counting um, and just dealing with Excel spreadsheets. It's a skill that every scientist needs to have in this day and age. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of other things involved in in our work on Lehua, of course, you know, we also are monitoring seabirds. And so, again, lots of counting. Yeah, we're counting. <laughs> counting gotta, the birds. You gotta love it. <laughs> counting the birds, counting the pears, counting the eggs, counting the chicks, you know, mm -hmm. how does that trend change over time? Um, so, yeah, it's it's been, it's been really fun um, working out there. But it's definitely a challenging place to work. Um, it's extremely hot, extremely mm -hmm. steep, very dry. There's no like high vegetation shade cover. Um, so it's a very challenging place. I'd say the average slope is about 35 to 40 degrees. Um, wow, that's steep. Across the whole island. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. My knees, um, you know, after about six years of working out there are definitely um, feeling it. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's, that's something that I, I feel a lot of uh, people don't realize about ecologists uh, like us, you know, oftentimes when it comes to studying, you know, uh, endangered populations or rare species, you got to hoof it out to where these things are. It can be hours and hours of backcountry hiking, really difficult terrain. And it's not just that you got to be there personally, you got to bring all your gear out there too. Yeah. Uh, it, it can get really, really tough. Uh, I did some work on the mainland when I was still in college in Colorado. Uh, and we were hiking around in an experimental forest. Uh, we were tracking and trapping uh, squirrels to map their territories to better understand how they were interacting with owls in the area. Um, but on a, on a daily basis, I would be out in the woods hiking in steep terrain with, you know, a whole, you know, back backpack that was it was really just a, a an empty frame with a bunch of tomahawk traps strapped to it. So here's me with like 50 traps on my back, just hiking around in the woods, setting them up all over the place. It really, it really is a lot of work on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a really good point. It's not just getting yourself out there. It's also getting all of your gear out there. And, you know, usually you're stopping 50 times a day because you've come to a certain monitoring point and then you need to take all your gear out and figure out what you need at this point and then do the work and then put it all back in and then throw it back on your back and, uh, and continue on to the next site. So, yeah, it's not just leisure hiking. Um, yeah. It's tough work. <laughs> yeah, you really need to learn to love the labor. And it's, for me, it's it's partially what you get out of it, you know, because we're contributing to conservation. But also, like, I've worked a lot of physically laborious jobs in my career. And so it, I've just come to the point where I have to appreciate, you know, working hard in a day. Otherwise, I just can't, I just can't be a career scientist because the, the stuff that I do is just manually laborious. Well, and one of the things that really keeps me going is working in such beautiful places that are yeah. so special. Yeah, it you really know, makes a difference. When we're out on Lehua, we are surrounded by like 25,000 wedge-tailed shearwater pairs 
pairs and like 17,000 red-footed booby pairs and another 10,000 brown boobies. And it's just, it's insanity. There's so many birds out there. It's fantastic. And there's, um, it's the only main island population of black-footed albatross. We've also got laysan albatross, red-tailed tropic birds, many species of noddies, um, and uh, bulwars petrels, storm petrels. So it's a fantastic seabird sanctuary. Um, yeah, it is a state seabird sanctuary. Um, there's, I think, 17 different species of birds that utilize that island. And so as I'm hiking around, you know, I'm just surrounded by all these birds all the time. And the ones that nest right along my trail that I take, you know, on a daily basis, I've given them all names and oh, I know their personalities and I'm like, hey, I'm back again, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so that's that's fun. That really keeps me going, seeing them grow. Have you seen uh, an uptick in bird activity since the rats were eradicated? I mean, I would assume yes, but, you know, for, for everyone listening at home, you know, there was a big press release a few months ago saying, hey, rats are gone from Lahua Island. But the reality is that rats were gone maybe like two years ago. Uh, and after consistent monitoring for multiple years, being like, hey, there are still no rats here. We are now able to confirm and celebrate that rats are eradicated. It's, it's part of the, the very... Um, thorough nature of scientists, and we're never willing to commit to a statement until we can fully back it up. So that's why it takes two years of monitoring to be able to commit to the statement that all the rats are gone. But now that it's been like two years since the rats have been gone, I would hope that um, seabird activity has picked up on the island. Is that accurate? Have you seen that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's interesting. We, like I said, we have many different species of birds on the island and they've all responded a little bit differently. Some of them really dramatically and mostly it's the really small species that we've seen with a huge, um, you know, rebound to their population. So the tiniest seabirds, like the bulwars petrels, I mean, they're only about the size of my hand and um, they're just adorable little things. Um, and they were being really heavily predated by the rats. Mm -hmm. um, prior to the rat eradication, I think we had six known burrows with a 0% fledging success rate. Wow, that's terrible. Yeah. That's literally as bad as it could be. <laughs> right. And um, since then, I think we've seen a 300% increase in their nesting uh, across the island. So mm -hmm. every time we go out there to monitor seabirds, we find more and more nests. And their success rate is um, really high now. Um, they are still being impacted by um, barn owls, unfortunately, mm. um, who like to hunt in that area. Yeah. Um, but the chicks are safe in their burrows, finally. And so that is a huge difference. Um, and if you guys haven't seen a bulwars petrel, I suggest you Google it and especially listen to their calls because they're so cute. It's like a weird combination of like a Pomeranian and a gorilla. 
just check it out and you'll see what I really? mean. All right. Well, <laughs> now I definitely have something to Google after the episode. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if the picture of one of those chicks is included in our social media posts. Uh, when this oh, episode does go live. They're so adorable. They're the best. <laughs> I mean, cute, cuteness. I was going to say cuteness sells, but the reality in conservation is that cuteness conserves. It, it <laughs> thrives um, interest in species. And uh, it, we call them uh, charismatic megafauna. Even, right. even though these chicks are very small, they still categorized as megafauna technically <laughs> uh but yeah when we're talking about like pandas or elephants or tigers you know the more charismatic a species is the easier it is to get people engaged in their conservation and i actually wanted to briefly touch uh because we're talking about you know people's perceptions about animals and certain species and you mentioned earlier that yeah um, you always want to use humane eradication practices when you can. Um, there's another very invasive species here in Hawaii uh, that, you know, a lot of people are, are doing work on, and it, it's cats. Cats are a, a very, um, I was going to say dangerous, but not necessarily dangerous, harmful species for native bird populations. Uh, and also the, the toxoplasmosis in their poop washes into the waterways and damages coastal systems. So they're really impacting uh, ecosystems on a multi-trophic level. But because we love cats so much and because they're such a charismatic species, you know, it, you can't really get people to sign on for an eradication effort for cats. And so, you know, the uh, management practices for dealing with invasive cats are, are very limited and what they're able to do. And so like for the most part, um, the state is trying to engage in uh, capture and release management where you capture a bunch of cats, ship them out to the mainland and you know, adopt them out there. Uh, they're trying to tell people who have cats here, keep your cat inside. There should be no outdoor cats in Hawaii because of their you know, horrible, horrible impacts. Uh, but you know, there's this sort of uh, gray line. You, know, you deal with it when you're talking about what animals are okay to eat and what animals are okay to eradicate from certain areas. And so I was wondering if, if you could maybe talk or touch on the ethics of invasive species management and eradication. And, you know, where is that actual line of what's okay to get rid of and what's not okay to get rid of? And, you know, who, who gets to decide? Is it, is it up to like individuals to say like, hey, we're not okay with this, so we want government to like mandate certain practices or or does that decision lie in the hands of scientists to determine what is humane and what is appropriate and then uh, you also mentioned that we want to prioritize you know long-term benefits so you know how do you balance you know eradicating all the rats against the the benefits of them not being there um there's this whole sort of you know I, I, again a gray area in terms of how do we treat these invasive species? And I was hoping that you could sort of enlighten, not necessarily give an answer to that question because it's very open-ended and there's a million answers to it, but just sort of like your perspective and your experience uh, working with rats on Lahua and sort of where you see this, uh, this gray area between rats and cats. Yeah, um, it's a very complex question, of course, and I can only speak to my experiences with it. Um, but, you know, 
so many of us, the reason we get into this line of work is because we are animal lovers, right? And we're n we don't have anything like, like I don't have anything against rats as a species specifically, um, but when they are out of place and invasive and causing harm to a number of really unique species, um, you know, once those species are gone, we lose them forever. And rats are a very common ubiquitous species. They are present many, many places in the world. And so the choice to remove them from an isolated system um, is meant to benefit, you know, all the other species that are present in that system. And I kind of think of it as um, like we have a responsibility as humans because we are the ones who introduce them to these places. And so, you know, if we choose to do nothing, um, you know, we're smart we are observing things, we can observe these impacts, we can document all the impacts that are having, happening from this, you know, on Lehua specifically, you know, we know that hundreds to maybe thousands of birds were being killed every year, right? And that's a continuous cycle of destruction that is happening. And so if we choose to do nothing, um, we are condoning that, right? We are allowing that, that destruction to continue. And those impacts that were caused by us as humans and our introduction of this species, um, a harmful species to a delicate ecosystem, um, you know, I think that we have a responsibility to do something. And we're smart, we know how to do something, right? We have proven tools that allow us to reverse that damage. And so through this one-time action of eradication, right, we go out there, boom, we get rid of all the rats. And, you know, hopefully for hundreds of more years after this, that cycle has now been broken. And those birds can live and thrive happily without the constant threat of rat predation. And so to me, that's kind of what is the best value um, for these unique species that will be gone forever if we decide to do nothing. And that is a decision, right? Like, like I said, we could, we know what's happening out there, right? We're observing these impacts. So, um, if we choose to do nothing, that's on us. Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. Uh, I think it's a very fitting big picture answer from a big <laughs> picture scientist. <laughs> so now now that we've succeeded, uh, I say we as the collective we, but really you and your team, we have succeeded in eradicating rats from Lahua Island. Uh, what's, what's next for Lahua? What, 
what are you uh, what are you looking forward to there? What other plans does island conservation have for the island? Um, well, lots of things. Um, you know, we are looking to do some social attraction to get some different species of seabirds back to the island. So there are species that um, have been locally extirpated. So they used to be there, but now they're not there. That could have been because of the rats or rabbits. Um, we don't know exactly, but um, you know, the fossil record shows that they used to be there. So um, we're doing some seabird social attraction, which involves like putting out decoys that look like those birds, putting out sound systems that make the calls of those birds, um, because seabirds are very social nesters, right? They like to nest in loud, noisy, populated colonies. Um, so we're working to attract, um, I think, five different species um, back to the island um, using that uh, method. And we're also going to be doing some native vegetation restoration. So um, we'll be doing some weeding, removing some uh, nasty weeds that impact the seabirds and uh, replanting with native uh, shrubs and ground covers and things. So that's up next. Um, and of course, marine monitoring, you know, we, it's fascinating. So here in Hawaii, right, like we know about the Ahupua'a system of resource management, right? So yes. that is kind of this um, traditional practice of managing land parcels kind of as a wedge, like in an island, right? So from the, the ridges of a valley, the whole valley in between, all the way up to the summit of the mountaintops, and all the way down to the coastline and and into the marine environment. Um, you know, all the nearshore marine environment is managed along with the, the land. And I think in, you know, kind of our more Western uh, scientific thinking, you know, we've split up the marine and the terrestrial environments. Um, but when you're working on an island, those things are so intrinsically linked and um, and we are having more and more like research coming out about how linked those things are um, in terms of invasive species removal. So there has been some really great research coming out of Chagos, which is in the Indian Ocean, and they have um, it's an archipelago. They have some islands with rats, some islands without rats. Islands without rats obviously have a lot more birds and those birds deposit a lot of guano, <laughs> which right. was once harvested as a primary form of um, fertilizer, right? Um, now there's lots of chemical fertilizers and we don't have to do that anymore. So the nutrient runoff that comes from these islands that are covered in seabirds and covered in guano um, is actually really vital to the health of the marine ecosystems around these islands. And um, we're starting to get a lot more research showing that the marine ecosystems around rat-free islands are just so much healthier, more abundant. The fish are bigger and there's more of them and the corals are healthier too. And um, compared with, you know, islands that have 
rats or other invasive species present on them. Um, so yeah, I think in Hawaii, like we've always understood that these things are so interconnected, but I think um, in the traditional scientific thinking, you know, we've oftentimes separated those two. And so um, uh, getting back to Lehua, we are going to be doing a lot more um, extensive marine monitoring around the island and um, looking for the changes to the marine system um, as a direct result of the terrestrial like land management that we did by removing the rats to protect seabirds. Um, seabirds are a really important driver of uh, both marine and terrestrial systems on islands. Yeah, definitely. I, I have to agree with you when you say that traditionally Western scientists separate uh, terrestrial and aquatic ecosystems. You know, as somebody who um, received the majority of their scientific training on the mainland and then moved out here, I've now been living on Hawaii for four years now. Um, you know, I, I come from the sort of westernized um, thought process, but over the course of living here, you know, we call it decolonizing your mind. I've, I've really put a lot of work into understanding Native Hawaiian perspective uh, and beyond that, just understanding the intricacies of island ecology and that interconnectedness of land and sea is one of those things that has really stuck out to me. You know, being an agricultural scientist, we're always managing uh, leachates out of agricultural systems. So these would be things like pesticides and fertilizer. So like excess nitrogen getting into our waterways and then leaching out into the ocean and causing eutrophication, which is the process by which uh, algae eats up all the oxygen in the water and then there's nothing else, nothing left for the fish to breathe. So all the fish die. Um, these types of interconnected problems are so common here in Hawaii, but they're very rare on the mainland. And so for us as scientists living and working here, it's really important for us to understand just how interconnected all of these systems are. And for you, as someone who's working on a, a even smaller island, than Oahu, where I work, uh, those interconnectedness or that interconnectedness just must be that much stronger. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I grew up, uh, you know, in the Hyena area and um, out there, there's a really fantastic example of community-based mm -hmm. uh, fishery management where, you know, community members help monitor the um, marine and the nearshore environment and, you know, the fishing um, resources that are out there. And it's been a huge success. And um, I think that's always been kind of part of my understanding of things. Um, but it it's not necessarily mm -hmm. like that everywhere. Well, we're coming to the end of the episode now. Uh, and so I always try at least to end things on a bit of a positive note. And Luckily, this whole episode has been full of positive notes because we're celebrating the success at Lahua Island. But I was hoping that you could share some other things that you're looking forward to in the future, either for, you know, invasive species management or, you know, stuff happening in, in Hawaii and conservation. But also just if there's anything cool happening in your personal life that you're looking forward to, like that's also something to celebrate. You know, we're we're all sorry, we're, we're not all of us, but 
we too, the two of us talking, we are scientists and we're always, you know, engaged in our work and our science, but we're still people and we still have lives and regular normal people things happen to us. And so, you know, there's room on the show to celebrate those things as well. So what what are you looking forward to in the future, Melee? <laughs> awesome. Um, well, uh, I guess I'll start with my personal note is that as a, you know, a millennial, I recently bought a house and that's been really exciting. Um, you know, I've been kind of part of that, that wave of millennials who have been getting into the house buying <laughs> yeah. frenzy that's happening right now. So um, that's been really exciting. And yeah, that is exciting. I'm just grateful because as a kid, I never thought it would be possible to own property here in Kauai. And I'm just really grateful that, um, we were able to make that happen. So mm. yeah, that's yeah, it's, really exciting. It's a big step in anyone's <laughs> life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but more on like the conservation note, um, you know, I think Lehua being finally successfully rat free has been a huge step for the conservation of Hawaii seabirds. Um, you know, this, island is now a safe haven for them. And hopefully through our social attraction efforts, we'll be able to attract even more um, seabirds to this safe place. You know, they, our seabirds really do get impacted by so many things on the main islands, whether it's power lines, cars, cats, dogs, um, you know, it, it uh, yeah, the expansion of, you know, humans into their environment, um, you know, development and everything. So on Lehua, you know, this island is set aside just for them. And it's, it's a high island, which is really significant for, you know, their future with the impacts of climate change. Um, the island is about 800 feet tall. Mm, um, that's big. So yeah, yeah, it's a it's a good size island, um, two hundred something acres. Um, I should know that off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so it it really is going to be a safe haven for them for many many years to come, um, and so that's really exciting to me to know that they will be protected in the long term um, as well as the short term. And, um, you know, I think Lehua has potential to be habitat for other threatened species as well. So not just seabirds, but um, potentially some other, um, you know, rare plants and things, um, possibly some snails, who knows? Ooh, big, um, big fan of snails. You might have noticed that our, our logo features a snail. Oh, nice. That's great. Um, yeah, and we're also, uh, you know, looking into the possibility of expanding some of the, um, the land birds from the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands, um, some of their populations down to um, Lehua. So uh, at, part of our vegetation restoration work is um, to make sure that we have possible, you know, food sources and things for them. Um, so if that uh, you know, the permits and everything line up for right. that in the future that we'll be ready for it. So, um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of great potential for Lehua. 
Um, but we also, you know, are kind of looking at Lehua as a springboard um, into other island systems, right? Um, we uh, have successfully eradicated rats now from this amazing island in Hawaii. And there are other islands that, you know, offshore islands um, and even islands as large as Koho'olawe potentially um, where uh, there are rats, there are impacts, there are native species that need help. And, um, you know, we're here to try and make that possible to, to prevent their extinction and to create safe habitat for these rare endemic species. It's just always refreshing as a conservationist when you hear these success stories and when there's actually like good things to look forward to because we get so bogged down in the doom and gloom of conservation. We need we need to pick me up every now and then. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's a really challenging thing about being in the conservation space is that, um, you know, we are just kind of bombarded constantly with like, oh, now this species is imperiled. Oh, now this species is going extinct. Oh, now we're losing this really important habitat. And um, that's one of the things that drew, drew, like really drew me to work at Island Conservation is that it felt like it was a place where you can really make a difference um, and have these great successes. You know, we've worked on islands where um, species that we thought were extinct after a rat eradication, suddenly they show up again. And none of our, you know, monitoring beforehand ever picked them up because they were just at such, such low suppressed levels. Yeah, you just miss um, them. Yeah. And so that's really exciting to be like, oh, my God, this species was extinct and now it's back. Like, uh, how crazy is that? It's one amazing and, surprise. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's things like um, uh, like some seabirds that we worked on in the Channel Islands, the Scripps murrelet. Um, they were on the verge of being listed as an endangered species. But because of the success of the rat eradication, they were not listed as endangered. And so, you know, that's like those kind of wins mm -hmm. really make a difference. Um, and, and you know, we're, we're able to downlist other species. So um, in, in uh, South America, we have some great projects over there. Um, we're working with the Peruvian Diving Patrol and um, two of our projects were recently successful over there. Um, those were rabbit eradications, actually, hmm. and um, the Peruvian diving petrol was downlisted as a result that from as a result of those successful eradications. So yeah, I mean it's just it's great to be part of these success stories and to be able to share them with the world and really cheer them along because unfortunately, you know, they are few and far between in the conservation landscape, and so. Um, it's just really wonderful to be a part of it. And I hope that we can increase the scale and the scope of what we're doing and be able to do it more and more places just to protect more species before they go extinct. Absolutely. Well, I wanted to thank you for giving, giving us your time and coming on the show to help us celebrate this success story. Is there, is there anything that you want to plug before we go? Like, I mean, you might want to plug Island Conservation or, or any other sort of 
efforts or things going on, like maybe you have a friend who's starting up a new like conservation oriented business or something like that. I don't know. Good plug away, girl. Do what you want. Um, yeah, I'll just say, you know, check out our website, um, islandconservation.org. Um, there's a lot of great uh, blog posts and success stories. You can see all the different places that we work around the world. Um, like I said, we've, we've uh, successfully restored 65 different islands around the world. Um, and right now we're really focused on Palau, um, Hawaii, uh, Chile, um, Galapagos, and Micronesia um, are kind of the main regions that we're working, but we've worked in so many different places, um, and uh, it's definitely worth checking out our website and um, seeing all the cool work that we're up to. Um, I'll also say, you know, check out the DLNR website, and there's a Lehua page there um, for the successful, you know, celebration of Lehua's restoration. Um, they've put up a story map that kind of gives some history of the island and talks about all the work that was done out there. And there's a lot of just really wonderful pictures and um, highlights of the different bird species that are present on the island. So um, definitely worth checking those resources out. Yeah, and, and while you guys are checking out those online resources, I'd also like to encourage you to check out uh, the Hawaii chapter of the Society for Conservation Biology's website, uh, www.hiscb.org. Uh, you can go ahead and join our chapter there. We offer volunteer opportunities for everybody uh, in the state of Hawaii, whether you are an experienced professional or you're brand new and looking for an opportunity to get out and get your hands dirty. We've got opportunities for you there. Also, big thank you to KTUH uh, for helping us produce these podcasts. So you can go ahead and check out their website. Uh, I believe it's KTUH.com. Might be .org. Oh, it feels kind of bad. Uh, but uh, KTUH, please don't drop our show. Uh, they are the station that loves you. Uh, you can find our recordings on their SoundCloud page. Also, we're up on Stitcher. Uh, so check us out there. Uh, and if you want to get in touch with us, you can. We have a Twitter, at ContalkBio. And also, you can reach us uh, on our email address, you know, old school. Uh, conservation talk story at gmail.com. Uh, thanks so much for listening, everybody. I uh, can't wait to have you for our next episode. Mahalo. Thank you so much, Max. It's great to be here.